Well, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, for the Lord Jesus who stands in our defense. Did you catch that in the song? Who stands in our defense. We're certainly going to be introduced to that in its full sense today out of Isaiah 6. If you will make your way to Isaiah chapter 6, this will be our third sermon in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 13. Next week, Lord willing, we will finish up uh, just for the new year to look into the King of Glory series. Uh, the first week, we dealt with the fact that we are called by God to exalt the King of Glory for His holiness. And we found that in verses 1 through 4. And then last week, we began to speak on the fact that we need to acknowledge human sin and the need for divine forgiveness. And we were able to talk about the human sin part. And I hope everybody left understanding your condition before a holy God. And Isaiah self-condemns himself. He is giving out the woes as a prophet in Isaiah 5. But in Isaiah 6, the light of the glory of the word of God and the glory of Christ is turned inward. And Isaiah sees himself before the Lord. And he's ruined. He's undone. He's destroyed. And so we were able to see that. And today we want to talk about divine Forgiveness. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, burning ones. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You probably would not want to name your kids Nadab and Abihu. Do you know the story that we find in the Word of God concerning these two men, it's found in Leviticus chapter 10. These two men were felt compelled to, to do their own experiment on what kind of incense they could bring before the Lord. And the Bible talks about the fact that they offered strange fire before the Lord. Now, I'm not certain that they did this out of intentional irreverence. You can read the story, the narrative. I don't think their goal was to be uh, the movers and shakers of the new Israelite religion. Perhaps they just wanted to find out what would happen if they took a little of this and a little of that and went inside, or should I say went outside God's prescription. You understand God had given exactly what he commanded, and he told them clearly, the king of glory let us know what he thought about strange fire offered before him. The fire came out from the altar of the Lord. And the Bible says that it consumed Nadab and Abihu. And they died 
right there in the presence of God and Aaron and Moses. The king of glory killed them. You say, well, that's pretty harsh. Well, folks, I only know one person that gives life, and I only know one that can take it away. The Bible teaches this clearly. And in this particular case, the king of glory, the same king on this throne that you just witnessed, out of Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4, is the same king of glory that killed Nadab and Abihu. We only need to think about Uzzah, who reached out just to keep the ark stationary. I mean, we don't know anything about him, but we do know that in his mind he thought it would be a good thing to reach out to keep the ark from tumbling off into the mud. But God said, do not touch it. And he touched it. And he died right in the presence of the Lord. When it comes to Nadab and Abihu, can you imagine the heart of Aaron watching his two sons die right before his face? And the Bible says, Moses said these words to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And the Bible says these words, Aaron held his peace. You know, folks, the God that we gather to worship today demands that he is worshipped for his glory and honor. And he's not trifled with. And we only need to read stories like Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah to come away saying, Wow, he is a holy, holy God. But again, we don't perceive that as much today in our culture, do we? Even in the preaching that we hear, most preaching is directed toward felt needs. So if you're trying to conform your sermon to felt needs, then a holy God that might kill people is not too accommodating. So we've lost the the transcendency and holiness of God, and we've dumbed it down so much that we're just trying to preach little things that hit on a felt need instead of preaching the glory and grandeur of God and letting Him take care of our felt needs. And the real felt need you have today is the fact that if you don't know the Lord God Almighty, you don't know Jesus and you're lost, then your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sins. And before you can do that, we've learned you've got to understand who God is. And when you see Him for who He is, like Isaiah did, and we also know that you can't see Him as He is until the Scripture reveals to you who He is. Right? Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what what does Jesus say to him? Flesh and blood cannot reveal that to you. But only the Father, who is in glory, can reveal who Jesus is. Only the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word. And so we learned, again last week, the glory and majesty of God as He is exalted. And here's the thing we dealt with thematically. What happens when the holy comes in contact with the unholy? And we learn from the Word of God what Isaiah's response was. And Isaiah was humbled. Isaiah was left in the dust. And how thankful I am to read verses 6 and 7. That there is uh, an intermediary. And folks, this is what we learn from Holy Scripture. When it comes to a holy God, there must be an intermediary. It is absolutely essential 
For us to be made right with God, Job said this in Job 9 and 10. How can a man be made right with God? There is absolutely no way without a mediator. And he, he begs for it. Job says, I need, if I had my day in court, I couldn't answer God one time out of a thousand. I need someone to go between me and God. I need an intermediary. So Isaiah is not at liberty, nor does he possess the capability to cleanse himself. He doesn't respond by saying, well, Lord, I can do some penance. I can go inside of that little tent, pull the curtain, and I can speak to the priest on the other side. No, that's not going to do it. A little penance will not do it. Maybe it'll take care of my unclean lips. Isaiah, ladies and gentlemen, is standing before the God of the universe and all of his holiness, and he is in abject spiritual poverty. And God must send another to take care of his condition. You do know that that's kind of the two, two uh, posts on either side of the gate when it comes to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? It, it, you understand that you are spiritually bankrupt without Jesus Christ. There's no entrance into the gate, period, unless you understand your sinful condition. And then it says, blessed are those who mourn. It is, it is weeping. It is lamentation. It is an understanding of your condition before the Lord. And all of us, without Christ, we are absolutely spiritually bankrupt. Is this going to be an important redemptive hist- historical thing to think about an intermediary? The fact that an angel has to take a live coal from the altar with tongs and touch it to his lips? Does this have a redemptive theme to it? That's a question. Does it? You better believe it does. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. So here, God sends an intermediary. Do you know that most commentators I've read just breeze over this part rather quickly? The part of an angel, uh, the burning one, going over to the altar and getting that live coal and bringing it and touching the lips of Isaiah you don't get a whole lot of detail about what's going on at this point. In verse 7, the Bible says that he touches Isaiah's mouth. Now, I think we all have rudimentary, a rudimentary understanding of what possibly could be going on. If you've read your Old Testament, if you've tracked redemptive history, if you know what happens in Genesis 3.15 and you understand how the Bible unfolds, then perhaps you are at least thinking about sacrificial language. Right? That something is going on here with the details of the text. In the Old Testament, there were two altars when it comes to the tabernacle and the temple. There was an altar of incense, and there was also an altar of burnt offerings. Take your copy of God's Word, Leviticus chapter 6. Open it up to Leviticus chapter 6, and let me try to put the two of these things together, share a little info. And then give you what I think is going on when the angel flies over, gets this live coal from the altar, touches Isaiah's lips, and is able to say your sin is removed and your sins are covered. Uh, That's huge terminology that we have to think about in the Bible. So in in Leviticus chapter 6, listen to verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the, the, the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on 
it. So the first thing we see is that the, sacri- the, the fire, the, the altar, is the place of sacrifice. It is a fire that's going how often? All the time. The sacrifice was brought to be placed on the altar itself. And there's a very good reason why the fire is to be kept going all the time. It's a picture to the people of Israel. And it's also a picture to us. The fire could not go out because it was a constant reminder of the wrath of God against sin. Now folks, this is clear from the understanding of the Old Testament. That that fire that was burning without ceasing, day after day, night after night, was a reminder that the people's sin was ever before them. And that God's wrath uh, would turn them away because of their sinfulness. When the sacrifice was brought to the altar, it was placed upon the burning coals. And the Bible tells us that that sacrifice was totally consumed until it was reduced to ashes. This is the picture we get. Think about this. Wrath of God against sin. Sacrifice totally consumed. This is a picture you get all the time when it comes to the burnt offering. You have the the need, you've got the wrath of God against the people's sin, and then you have sacrifice, and then you have that sacrifice totally consumed. Now let's flip over to Leviticus chapter 16. Some other instructions to Aaron, beginning in verse 11. By the way, to be a priest, you must have carried some pretty healthy insurance premiums, don't you think? Life insurance premium. Your wife would probably tell you if you were a priest, I hope you got a million dollar policy, dude, before you enter into this place. Right? Pretty high insurance premiums. All right? Don't get any ideas, Natalie. Right? All right. I'm not a high priest. All right. Verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for the house, for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. And put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger On the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now, you certainly did not want to mess around in the Holy of Holies, correct? There were certain things that Aaron knew full well as a priest that you did not do. And there were certain things that you did. So in Leviticus 16 what we have here is a sacrifice that is joined together with incense. And the incense was used in order to create smoke. The smoke, on one hand, is definitely a sign of judgment, right? Because in Isaiah 6, the Bible says the temple or the tabernacle, whichever one, the palace, the word in Hebrew could either be palace or temple, but it is filled with smoke. And so, we know full well that fire, smoke, and oftentimes it's accompanied by an earthquake, They're signs of judgment from God. So the consuming of the sacrifice of divine wrath is what we're seeing. But also notice that the smoke was designed to protect the high priest. Isn't this awesome? It's very interesting that the same smoke that is a symbol of judgment is also a symbol of mercy. 
to the high priest because it keeps him from dying. So at this point, the mercy seat has the blood placed upon it for atonement. Now this is what I suggest to you is happening in Isaiah chapter 6. When the seraph flies over to the altar and picks up one of those burning coals, this burning coal would have been covered with the immolated sacrifice. Have you ever heard of the word immolate? Immolated is a sacrifice. So think about this for a moment. Think with me. The burning coal would have been covered with the remains of a sacrifice that was absolutely fully consumed. And this is the divine picture of the symbol of God's wrath being propitiated before Isaiah. We don't use this word very much, yet it's exactly what is happening here. Propitiation is having the wrath of God averted and turned away and appeased. I know there's been times I've been preaching along and I use a theological word and you're like, what in the world does that mean? Well, folks, just because I said the word and you've never heard the word doesn't mean the word exists. doesn't exist. It exists in the Bible and there's a reason it's given for us. And the word propitiation is a huge theological word. As a matter of fact, if God is not propitiated, you're not saved. If the wrath of God is not turned away from you, then there's no possible way for you to be redeemed. So propitiation is having the wrath of God averted, turned away, and appeased. Years ago, liberal theologians desired to get away from the word propitiate and simply use the word expiate or expiation. To expiate means to cover or to remove. Propitiate is so bound up inextricably though, however, with the wrath of God, which we know is true, who wants to deal with the wrath of God? So the best way to deal with the wrath of God against sin is to change the word or remove that word propitiate and use expiate. So the need to have the wrath of God turned away, ladies and gentlemen, is presented all the way through the Bible in the Old and the New Testament. So the seraph has in his possession the very symbol of propitiation, immolated sacrifice, drenched into those coals, fully burned, consumed, And left for ashes. He touches Isaiah's lips with it, which is a sign of cleansing. Notice, behold, this has touched your lips and literally removed your iniquity and your sin covered. Your iniquity has been turned aside and your sin has been propitiated. Wow. It is the word kaper, which means where we get our word yom kaper, day of atonement. This is the day of propitiation. It's the exact same word, or exact same thing we see in Leviticus. If you read this part, when you have two goats, and the goats are taken to the tabernacle, one is called the scapegoat, and he is sent outside of the camp, symbolizing expiation. The removal of sin, taken away. The other goat is slaughtered. And his blood covers the mercy seat. Which is the covering of atonement and or propitiation of turning the wrath of God away. Get those two things in your mind. The wrath of God must be turned away and your sin must be removed. Folks, without those two things there is no salvation. Without that intermediary. Without Jesus Christ. Uh, In Isaiah's case, without that fully consumed sacrifice burnt on that offering over and over and over and over and over again on that altar, which was repeated, right? 
There was no covering for Isaiah at the time. So, the fact of the matter is, we see the only remedy. Isaiah's iniquity was taken away. Now think about this. Here is Isaiah standing in the throne room of heaven itself. Feeling undone, self-condemned, himself before a thrice holy God. He is in absolute despair because of his own sinfulness. God, in his mercy, sends this intermediary to come to him and take the hot coal from the altar and touches him. And it symbolizes the fact that God Almighty has been appeased. And Isaiah's iniquity has been taken away. His sin is atoned for. Don't you think Isaiah was filled with relief? Don't you think that high priest was filled with relief every time that he offered it there and left, knowing full well that he survived? The one who had just pronounced an oracle of woe upon himself, woe is me, is himself now told that his sin is taken away and his iniquity atoned for. Right here in Isaiah is a glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to say amen to that. What an awesome picture. The Lord Jesus on the hill of Calvary takes away our sin. Every sin that you and I have ever committed is placed on Him as the sin bearer. Immolated sacrifice. The Lamb of God who removes our sin. Where is Jesus crucified, by the way? Outside the camp. Hebrews chapter 13. He was taken outside of Jerusalem and crucified. Our sins are taken away. More than that, the wrath of God was justly targeted to us. And God actually targets Jesus Christ to take our sin. Are you all listening? You do understand that the wrath of God justly targeted toward you and me is turned away because of the sacrifice of the Son of God. The hell that we deserved, we're able to avoid because of this sacrifice. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we as Baptists and others can sing, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part. Do y'all know music? You ought to be saying this. But the whole was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. And we ought to all say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now Isaiah is ready to serve God. Notice the order here. You understand who God is? You you understand your self-condemnation before the Lord? You are purged and cleansed of your sin, meaning that the wrath of God is turned away and your sin is removed and covered. And then you are ready to serve the Lord. So this is what happens when the holy comes in contact with sinful people. It's the only option in the universe. Expiation and propitiation. Removal of our sin and the appeasement of the wrath of God through Jesus Christ the Lord. One awesome surprise we have in Isaiah chapter 6 comes when the Apostle John gives us the true identity of the one who is upon the throne. And we talked about this briefly. Who did he actually see? We said, well, he saw God the Father. Well, not so fast. Again, no one sees. God, is, God dwells in unapproachable light, so no one has seen, one, seen him at any time. So these are uh, 
anthropomorphic terms, their theophanies or a Christophany, for us to grasp a little of the glory of God, but no one has ever seen God totally in his essence. We know the Son of God revealed him to us, right? He did. But the fact is, when you get to John chapter 12, listen to the word. Verse 39. Therefore they said, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, we'll see this next week. This is the sermon next week, part of this. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would, I would heal them. Listen to verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of, of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So what did we learn in John chapter 12? Astonishing words. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about them. Notice the exact chapter and reference that John quotes for us is the exact chapter and reference of Isaiah's vision before the Lord and what Isaiah was told to tell the people when he went and preached. So who was he preaching to? Well, it was the Pharisees. It was the Jewish people. And they had rejected Jesus Christ despite the miracles and in John chapter 12, he gives these astonishing words. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. So in the context of John 12, the his and him cannot refer to God the Father, but only to Jesus. Why? Because he's referring to the one who performed the miracles at the present. Who uh, healed blind eyes and caused the lame to walk. But they still did not believe in him. Verse 42 speaks of Many who did not believe in him, but were unable to confess him freely, so that they would not be banished from the synagogue. So John 12 is speaking of Jesus, the great and awesome King of glory, seated on a throne, high and exalted, the one who seraphim cannot fully look upon. They veil their faces because of his glory. That one is the Son of God. That's who Isaiah saw. Just think about the mystery of the incarnation for a moment. I know, you know, I got robbed a little bit during Christmas and didn't get to preach, but about one on Christmas because of different things going on, one sermon. But just think about the incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth is the God of heaven and earth. He is the creator of the fiery angels that are depicted in Isaiah chapter 6. He is the creator of the archangels. And even the lowly caterpillars that crawl on the ground. He's the very one who crafted and shaped the mountains. He's the one who spread out the stars in space. And yet, this is the very one who would get off his throne and condescend to earth to save us from our sins. This is who we're dealing with. We're dealing with the God of creation. John said this in John 1, did he not? There was nothing that was made that wasn't made by him. He made it all. This is Jesus. So Isaiah cries, Woe is me. I'm in need of purification. I'm ruined in my sin. And the live coal taken from the altar, no doubt, foreshadows the purifying, cleansing, forgiving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of Jesus is infinite and will radiate through the new heavens and the new earth forever. And Isaiah wrote about Him. That he saw his glory by faith. And as a matter of fact, 
God propitiated, expiated his sin. So, not only does chapter 6 call us to heavenly worship of the glorious Christ, but it also calls us to join the Holy One, those angels to cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It also calls us to understand how holy God is. And thus, we have a need to be forgiven from the pollution of our sin. It calls us to understand that only through the atonement of Jesus Christ can we have a right standing before God. Only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ can our sins be atoned for. You do know we've committed cosmic treason against God that is deserving of hell and eternal separation. Yet here, not only do we see our sin, but we see the grace and mercy of the living and true God who acted because of our sinful condition. That's what we see in the text. Here are some great, great verses. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Was that sacrificial language? He bore our sin in his body on the tree. Hallelujah. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Romans chapter 3 it's all put together clearly for us. Listen to verse 21 of Romans 3. Listen close. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. In other words, if you're going to be saved, there's no distinction. You must believe by faith. You must believe the gospel by faith. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what I just preached to you, that you are condemned before God, that there's absolutely no access, that you have to have an intermediary, and Jesus Christ is the only one that could be that. The only God-man, the only perfect Son of God, was that particular sacrifice. Although the law and the prophet... Listen, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. <clears throat> for all have sinned. Y'all know this verse? And fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift... Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Just so you know that word's in the Bible. Hello out there. There it is. God put him forward as a propitiation. In other words, folks, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had to kill his only son so that you could have eternal life. That's the gospel. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, he put him forward as a propitiation. Immolated, consumed, totally consumed sacrifice in order to save sinners. Why? Because God is holy. And he's, his wrath against sin. You can't, you can't trifle with him. The same God that destroyed Nadab and Abihu is the same God who lives today. He hasn't changed. He's still on his throne no matter what the politicians say. No matter what America says, no matter if we build a wall or don't build a wall, my God is in control. He is. He's sitting on His throne. Right? And Jesus Christ is here to save sinners. Unless they can put Him back in the tomb, and they won't, then everything's going to be fine, right? Because He is the resurrected King. So those verses, listen to this. Put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received 
by faith. Listen, folks, as clear as I can, I'm calling you to understand that your sins must be atoned for, removed, covered, and they also must be turned away. The wrath of God must be turned away in order for you to be saved. And I'm telling you, you've got to believe that by faith. You've got to believe into Jesus Christ. Not a blind leap of faith. We're talking about historical facts of who Jesus Christ is and what He accomplished. And then the Bible says, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just. That's the Holy God sitting on a throne. That He might be just and the justifier. How can God, who is absolutely just and holy and righteous, forgive sinful man? He can't without an intermediary. He can't remain totally just and forgive sins unless he has the ability to forgive. And he can't forgive apart from Jesus. Are y'all listening? There's absolutely no chance of salvation. There aren't many ways to heaven. There are not parallel roads that all come together. Get this out of your mind that, well, in the end, if he's really God and he's out there, then he's going to let everybody go to heaven. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible can only be uh, accepted and Uh, You can't be in His presence. You can't be acceptable before Him apart from the Son of God who He sent into the world to save sinners. That's the teaching of the Word of God. Let me show you one final verse. It's one of my favorites. Chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Let's get the picture. The Bible says, unless your righteousness... Are you all listening? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You ever read that verse? No one was more righteous to the sight than anybody during that day. They wore all their pompous stuff and they they did everything they did to show that they were outwardly more righteous than everyone else. They kept the law, so they said, right? But here's a Pharisee and a tax collector, a publican, who is hated by everybody. Why? Same reason you probably don't like tax collectors. Okay? But in that day, the majority of them were crooked. They made money from the people, hand over fist. And here the Bible says they go down to the place of worship to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that all I get. In other words, I'm a good Baptist. Listen to this. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. There's a good reason for that. Because the convicting power of the Holy Spirit was all over this man, and he understood who God was and who he was. You can't be saved without this. And the Bible says, But the tax collector, standing far off. This this ought to be our posture before God this morning. Are y'all hearing this? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know what the word merciful is? God, be propitiated to me. There it is. God, be mercy to me. Let your wrath turn away. And then listen to the Bible. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Wow. You know what it means to be justified? It means you're pardoned from your sin. The guilt is removed and taken away. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went home justified. Why? Because he understood who God was and he understood who he was himself. He didn't look around at the other Baptists in the church and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like them. I mean, I got everything together. No, folks. The more you know of the God of eternity, the more you'll know of, you'll be more keenly aware of your own sinfulness. Not only initially when you come to know Christ, thank God that your, ex, that his, that your sin is removed and your, your sins are atoned for. Thank the Lord for that. But even as a Christian, you ought to be keenly aware that you're still a sinner. And you're going to sin. And don't use this excuse like Baptists do. Well, I'm, I'm saved and I'm on my way to heaven. I can live like I want to. I tell you folks, saved people don't think that way. Saved people don't know a God like that. They know a God who has saved them and they're going to do everything they can to please Him and to serve Him. And when they sin, they're going to be faithful and just. I mean, they're going to confess their sins. He's going to be faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No better day than to come to Jesus than today. For by grace are we saved through faith. Check this out. Parenthetical. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not a single person will ever boast in his presence. If you're saved today, it's all because of Jesus and nothing because of you. Right? It's all because of Jesus. Would you come to Christ today? Would you, would you give in and say, dear God, I see who I am. I'm a sinner before you. And I know there's absolutely no way of heaven apart from Jesus Christ forgiving me of my sin. Removing the wrath that is against my sin. And, and covering. You do know that this... I don't have a watch on. You do know... That's a good way to preach, right? No watch. You do know that this is all over Exodus chapter 12 in the Passover. What, what does God say when that, after the angel takes that blood and puts it on the doorpost and the lintel? What does he say? When I see, that's propitiation. When I see the blood, my wrath will be turned away. When I see the blood, I will pass. And there's the guilt removed. It's all over the Bible, folks. You must, the wrath must be turned away. And I'm telling you, when God saw the blood of Jesus on Calvary, the wrath was turned away for sinners who come by faith and trust Jesus Christ. And your sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Great God, we thank you for words like propitiation. That you could even have your wrath turned away. And it's only possible because of the blood of Jesus. Hot coal from the altar symbolizes for us the need of purification. Only Jesus could do that. And we thank you, Father, for Him. If, if there's a lost soul in this building today, God, would you intercept them before it is everlastingly too late? And for Christians, God, give us a new hunger for the holiness of God and a respect and a reverence for you. May we join the holy angels to worship and adore you for who you are. And Lord, may we be keenly aware of our sin. May we walk in, Lord, we have to ask ourselves a question. How are we doing in this holiness thing? Because in 1 Peter you say, be holy, even as our Father in heaven is holy. God, the distinctive characteristics 
are passed to us once we're redeemed in the fact that we're called to live godly lives. And the power to live that godly life is through the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ living in us so that we can live the Christian life. We thank you for it. God, would you work in our time of invitation to your glory. Amen.